This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash view. Hey, everybody, and welcome to Enjoy the View. I'm Ben Hong, and today on our panel, we have Ari Clark. Hello. And we also have our first-time guest panelist, Tessa. Hi. And today, our special guest for this episode is Sarah Dayong. Hi there. Thanks for having me. Sarah, would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. So my name is Sarah Dayan. You said it perfectly. Yeah. Uh, I'm a staff software engineer in, in Algolia. So Algolia is a search company that you probably already used. If you went on the Vue.js documentation, you already used Algolia uh, many, many times. And so I work in the documentation squad at Algolia. So we make sure that Algolia is easy to implement by providing awesome KiCast documentation. And so I'm a front-end engineer. I've been doing that for 10 years. And so basically what I do is mostly JavaScript, TypeScript, CSS. I started with PHP, but I quickly moved down to the front-end. And so usually the topics that I cannot shut up about are test-driven development, which is a talk that I gave in VUE Amsterdam back in February, as well as in Toronto in 2019. Also talk a lot about utility for CSS, Tailwind, et cetera. And you may also hear me talk oh, a lot about monetary values in JavaScript, for which I built a library called Narrow.js. So you don't have enough going on. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> <laughs> I, I try to split my time. I try to write as much as I can. I try to, to code when I want. And yes, it's usually quite hard to juggle with everything, but so far, so good. I might have to slow down a bit, especially in those crazy times. But yeah, so far, so good. <laughs> That's amazing. For those who attended ViewConf US, you might remember that Sarah is actually one of the original speakers that was on the lineup and supposed to be giving your TDD talk, which I had a chance to see in Toronto and absolutely love. So Sarah, could you tell us a little bit about just like what you were going to talk about and hopefully we can share some of those insights to the people listening today? Yes, absolutely. So the thing is that when you write components, it can be, especially in Vue, uh, it can be a bit counterintuitive when it comes to testing it because you look at the final code and it's really hard to know where to start, what to test, in what way. And you go on uh, websites, like, like go for libraries like Vue Test Utils and they tell you a little bit about it. But still, like, where do you start? What do you test? What don't you test? And so that was really my feeling. Every time I wanted to test a finished project that I've made in Vue, I was like, okay, am I testing it right? Am I over-testing, under-testing? Should it be a unit test? Should it be a whatever else test? And so what happened all the time is that I just didn't write a test because, because it's annoying and because it takes time and because figuring out what to do is, is super annoying. And so I decided to look a little bit into some old patterns. And I already been doing TDD in JavaScript, plain JavaScript. And I thought, okay, let's, let's try. Let's see if it works out with you. And actually it does. It really does because it really helps you focus what the component should be doing and not what method or how it does things. It's really what it does and not how it does it. And so I really liked this approach. I gave it a try and I discovered that it worked really well. It works well when building things because you're only focusing on the important stuff, which is the contract, not the implementation. But also it works extremely well when you want to fix issues when you have a bug. Because yeah, you're in a situation where you know what you want, you know, you have a situation, you know what you want, and you know that you don't have it because you have a bug. And so TDD is really great because you're going to reverse engineer your way to a working implementation. And so that's really what got me into that whole TDD madness and why I'm talking about it all the time and trying to convince people because I see that it works and I end up with tests that I actually feel confident about. I don't have, you know, 
that feeling, oh yeah, we have a test, we have a test suite, but and it runs, but uh, somehow we still manually test because we don't really trust it. Okay, I don't want that, you know. I don't enjoy particularly having to retest everything by hand, feeling like, okay, we are deploying and maybe it's going to break and maybe I'm going to spend my evening fixing that. Now, that's not really something that I enjoy. I'd rather try to understand what I do and do it the best way I can. Can we talk a little bit about this concept of a contract and a component? Like, what does that mean? A contract basically is what the outside world expects that your component does and how it reacts. So, for example, you, you have many things that can compose a contract with components. If you come from backend or if you even, even with JavaScript or especially TypeScript, a contract is usually something that you set with an interface. Now, if you're not familiar to that, let's not go deep in that. Let's see what it looks like with a component. With a component, let's say you have a button component. Let's go with the simplest thing that we can do. Components with a button that increments a counter, for example. The contract is that when you click on the button, it increments the counter. That's the contract. For the end user, for the outside world, this is the contract. Whether you're using a number in, under the hood or a big integer, it does not matter. For the outside world, what they expect is that when they click, it increments a counter. And it's not even a counter because it might be, it increments a number that is printed on the button, for example. So if you have a counter, so it's an internal value, let's say it's on the data, on the data property in view, right? So you have a counter property and it increments. You're not willing, like what you should not be doing is calling that value and see if it has changed because the end user cannot do that. They cannot call that value and they cannot be relying on it. So that's not part of a contract that you've made with them. If you decide, let's say you have a counter data property and you decide to change its name, then you should be able to do that. But, and, and that's, that's why it's not part of the contract. Nobody can call it directly, do a whatever, whatever dot counter when, when they use it, right? At least they should not be doing it. If they can, they should not be doing it. What they care about as consumers of the, of the component, they care about the fact that they can change something, like their behavior can affect something, and that it has a result, it has a side effect. If the counter is incremented and it's printed in the text of the button, for example, that's the contract. When I click on the button, the text changes and it changes in that value plus one. You can have many other things in a contract because we're talking about the user, for example, who is the end user, the person who uses the component as a consumer, the browser website where your component is used. But you can also have the developer. The developer is also a consumer of your components. If you create open source components for Vue and you publish them on GitHub, for example, then you have a developer that may be using it. And for example, they might be styling the button with CSS and they might be using a class that you use on, on the button. If you have a .btn class and you change it, then you broke the contract and you're going to break the styles of the person who is using it. So this is also, this can be a part of your contract. And ultimately, many things can be part of your contract. HTML structure, uh, CSS classes, etc. Ultimately, you define the contract because many things are public in your component, many things that can be relied on, but you may not want all of those things to be relied upon. So that's also your job to document what is part of the public interface and what is not. But this is what I mean by contract. The contract is what the outside world can expect about what you build so they can rely on it. And it differs from the internals, from the implementation details. Whether you call a method in one way and you change it, if it behaves the same way and gives the same external effect, then the contract is respected. That was an excellent explanation, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, so a lot of times I think when we hear about TDD and programming, you know, usually it's like unit level tests. 
And so what are your thoughts as far as like on a broader scale from like end-to-end testing, right? Because I think it's tricky as front-end developers when sometimes you feel like you might care about the flow more so than like maybe individual components. I think um, Chris had this great like saying that he told me where he was like, you know, whenever I join a team, there are only two tests that I make sure they have. It's like one, can the user log in? And two, can they give us money? That's nothing else matters. <laughs> because if those two tests are broken, you don't have a business. Like, it doesn't matter if they can log out. It doesn't like we can fix that later. <laughs> but yeah, I was curious what your thoughts are as far as like end-to-end tests in like the scheme of things. Yeah, I definitely believe that TDD does not only apply to unit tests. They work really great with unit tests, but they can work really well with other kinds of tests because the idea of TDD is only to declare what something should be doing, seeing that it doesn't work and working your way that works. So the idea is to say uh, people can log in and obviously if you have no code, if you have nothing, then the user cannot log in. And so you're going to work your, like basically you are, with your test, you're defining what is a proof that the user can log in and you're going to work your way so that proof is fulfilled, that promise is fulfilled. So theoretically, it works with any kind of test because any piece of software is built the same way. You have an expectation, you have something that you want to be working in a certain way, and then you make it happen. You go from it doesn't exist or it doesn't work to it exists and it works. Then practically speaking, it can be tougher to write certain kinds of tests with TDD than others. Unit tests are really easy to do TDD with. With end-to-end tests that can be tricky, but it's doable. It really depends on what kind of test that you're doing because end-to-end can mean anything and everything. And it's really like I'm using the program in real conditions. So yeah, if it's a website, we all know what it means. It's like I'm querying the DOM or I'm clicking, like I'm spawning a browser instance. But like if you have a component, an open source component. What is an end-to-end test? What does it look like? Because to me, an end-to-end test right. could be, uh, yeah, I'm mounting it in an actual HTML page and I'm loading it in Internet Explorer and seeing whether it works or not, you know? So mm-hmm. there are many things like that. And usually those end-to-end tests are even a bit lower in the curve. You have integration tests. They require a lot of setup because this is where you're going to mimic the outside world you're going to either be using a real uh, instance of Internet Explorer or you're going to create a mock database, et cetera. And so in those situations that can be trickier to do TDD, I still believe it's possible, but I don't want to be just like, oh yeah, it's easy, you can do it, so please do it. No, sometimes it's trickier and sometimes you realize that you're in a situation, like there are some libraries where you have to mock quite a bunch of things to make everything work in isolation without the network. And in those cases, yeah, TDD may may not be easy to do and sometimes even not make sense. I believe that if you start with unit test and with TDD, you're already in a pretty good place. And then it's more about trying to respect the spirit of it and being like, okay, I'm going to try and build something and then I'm going to stop and I'm going to make sure like, First, I write it down. I write down what I want to do. Then I'm going to build it. And then maybe I will try to build my test setup and write a test for it. And so it's really respecting the idea of I try not to build something without adding a test for it. Whether it comes right before or right after, then it's more about whether are you really comfortable with TDD? Do you really understand the concepts? And do you trust yourself enough to respect the spirit of it, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And there is a really good thing with uh, when you have end-to-end tests is that then when you have them and you want to do a big refactor, they're really excellent to make sure that you did not break anything because basically end-to-end tests are the ultimate litmus test. Like Because they should not be using mocks or anything, they should be really testing the end, the end thing. There, there is no... A fake, there, there's no setup that may be uh, triggering false positives or false negatives. And so 
when you're really only refactoring and not changing anything, you can just run that uh, that test suite, those end-to-end tests. And this way you're like, okay, now I'm hacking away with with internal stuff and it should be better, maybe faster, but it should not change. To me, that's uh, end-to-end tests are basically the best representation of what the contract is because you cannot hack into the internals. You're only really testing what you see and what you can interact with. Very cool. I was just going to say, yeah, I feel like what I had been reading on Twitter for the last year was like a trend towards like E to E or integration instead of TDD. So it's really interesting to hear the other perspective. And I, I think one thing that I've seen a lot, at least in my own code, is like when you're writing unit tests, there's a temptation, I feel like, to trend towards integration tests. I don't know if anybody else has had that experience or seen that experience. But like, for example, when I was talking to QA a couple of weeks ago about unit tests, she was also starting to get confused. And Sarah, I saw in your talk that you had a really good tip on how to know what to test for unit tests. So I was wondering if you could speak more about that. Yes. So the tip I think that you're referring to is, is so when, when you don't know, should I test it or should, shouldn't I test it? The question that you can ask yourself is, do I care about it if it changes? If, it, yeah. if you care, you need a test. If you don't care, you don't need a test. And there is a variation, which is if you don't care, but somebody else might care, you don't need a test, but you need documentation. So the example with the CSS class, you have a button. This button can do things. And that's something that someone, like I care that if it changes, I want to know. So I need a test for it. But I don't care if I change the button to a, an anchor tag, for example, or a div to a spanner. But maybe someone cares because they have CSS that relies on that because they're targeting the HTML tag. So they care about it. So if I don't want them to use that because I don't want to break their implementation every time I push something, or maybe it's, it's someone in my team, like I'm working on the view component and the, the JavaScript aspect, and maybe someone is writing the CSS and we are in a big company and it's a component library that everybody uses and suddenly you get a lot of Slack messages telling you that you suck. So basically in <laughs> those cases, <laughs> in those cases, you really want to document it and you, you want to document it and you also want to provide alternatives because yeah, uh, your component does not exist on the, in a vacuum. People are going to try to do things with it. And so if you don't want people to be styling directly on HTML tags, in that case, you need to provide CSS classes that are unambiguous, unequivocal, and to document that, hey, this is what you should be relying on. The HTML might change if this is what you want to do. And so, yeah, so to me, that's really the litmus test. Like, do I care about it if it changes? And usually it doesn't fail. And so to answer you, 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 you talked about something that I think is extremely interesting is that that line between unit integration and to end, which is, to be honest, really confusing. And if it's okay, if anybody is confused about it, it's perfectly normal because those namings, you know, a unit integration, they are vague and they're vague for a reason. It's because they're meant to be generic. What is a unit? What, what the hell is a unit? Is it a function? Right. Is yes. It, right. Is is a class a unit? You know. But and then that's the that's the goal. It's called unit for a reason because a class might be many things. Uh, when you do a PHP or Ruby class and it's a full controller, but somehow it's built with a class, then no, or maybe not. But if your class is just one thing that does a thing then maybe yes. So first, if you're confused about it, it's perfectly normal. The definitions, uh, they change depending on the use case, the, like whether it's front-end, back-end, whether you're doing a website or whether you're doing an, an app or whether you're doing a library. And it changes from person to person. And to be honest, I, have, I absolutely do not have uh, the truth and I'm not even looking for the truth. I don't care because my goal is to be confident. And the goal to me is not to be right. It will depend. And confidence is a subjective thing that 
is different from one person to the next. And I discussed with really talented and smart people who I don't necessarily agree with. If you, for example, if you follow Ken C. Dodds, who is a big React guru, mm-hmm. he is extremely knowledgeable on tests. He's extremely knowledgeable. But we disagree, and we discussed already on Twitter several times about that. We, we don't necessarily agree on everything. He's pretty much not interested in, in the differences between unit integration because, and I think it's a valid point for him, all that matters is that you're confident. And it's a valid point. I believe that there is value in separations, in separation of tests, because I, especially as a TDD person, as someone who does TDD a lot, I know that building with tests first is going to shape the way that you build things. And I believe that when you, you're trying to treat your tests differently, depending on what you're doing, when you're trying to actually write unit tests, it's going to make you design your components or your functions differently than when you're saying, I just want to test that it does what it should be doing. And so it's going to help you split your code, for example. It's going to help you make sure that you build proper abstractions and that your, the integration part, so the place where everything fits together, for example, a, a controller or a page or the place where you build up the page with your components, for example, stays clean and is not trying to mess up too much with domain code, for example, if that makes sense. So, and, oh, and there are many other things, many other things that are really interesting because yeah, you will, there are also some practices, some good practices that you may want to respect, whether you're doing unit integration or end-to-end, trying to not mock too much or feeling okay with mocking, for example. And again, no hard truth here, but it helps because those are guiding principles. You also have the possibility of splitting your test and running only parts of it, depending on what you want to do. I do not want to run all my tests all the time when I'm developing. (laughs) I don't run my integration tests all the time when I'm developing, but my unit tests are always running. If I'm running my test in a CI, I may first want to run my unit test. And if they fail, I I may not even want to run my integration test or my end-to-end test because I know they may be a lot. They may take longer. They may require more CI time. So... To me, there is a value. There is a value in trying to find the line. Doesn't mean that some, sometimes you don't have something that is in between and that's okay. But I think, yeah, there is value in trying to understand the differences, why they exist. They, like they don't exist for no reason. And it, it's really helpful to try and understand. And I believe if someone understands it and decides, I don't think it matters. To me, it's fine. It's perfectly fine. But discarding the slight differences just because you don't really want to go into it, then I think it's kind of a bummer because it's really interesting and it makes you better at programming. Yeah, that makes sense. I have a couple of follow-up questions about those boundaries. So like on my last team, we didn't do snapshot tests. And so we would put like all of our copy, whether it's like button text or link text or whatever, in unit tests. And I was wondering what your opinion is on where things like that belong. And also, I feel like I've read a lot about BDD or behavior-driven development versus TDD. And I'm wondering if that distinction is useful in, in this area at all or not really, if they're like interchangeable here, if that makes sense. So uh, you have many really interesting questions. Full disclosure on BDD versus TDD, I am not really knowledgeable on what the difference is. I'm not going to fake that I am because I feel, and from what, I, what I've read about it so far, that they are pretty much interchangeable. But from discussing with a few folks, I think there are a few subtleties that I would really love to get into. So... Don't take my word for it. It may not be interchangeable. I think the principles behind it are pretty much the same, but there might be a few subtleties to dig into, and that might be really interesting to understand. And yeah, if there are two ways of saying it, if there are two namings, there might be 
differences that are worth noting. So that's that's for BDD versus TDD. Now, regarding what you said, so you talked about, yeah, link text, link, href, et cetera, whether, like, whether it, it fits in a unit test, right? Yeah. Yes. All right. So to me, yes, it definitely does. I only do snapshot testing when, for example, I do node code. So I write something that generates a JSON file, for example, and I want to test that my JSON file is not broken. Because to me, snapshots are really great when you want to test logs or code, Mm -hmm. like generated code. I don't like using snapshot testing for like in place of unit tests because I think first they're incomplete. They cannot really test behavior. Second, I think they look great at first when you have three lines of code to test and they're like, yeah, I don't have to write tests. I just, I can just do an equality check. But the problem is that with time, you don't really read it. Yeah, when you review it, you don't really pay it a lot of attention because it's a bunch of code, of generated code. And the problem is that, yeah, if then you want to do behavior testing, like uh, I click on this or I hover or whatever, then you have two places where you test your single component. And finally, because you lose the intent when you're saying, okay, I'm comparing the render of a component with a snapshot, you lose the intent that you get when you're writing assertions. And when you're saying it renders the label that the user passed as a prop, then I'm a new developer on the code base. Basically, what I can do if there are are proper tests, I can open test cases, test files, and I can just look at what it says. And I'm like, okay, I understand the intent. I understand the contract. And I understand why it's written that way. And even if there's no documentation, tests can actually act as documentation. When I see a snapshot, then I have to decipher all that. That's not really, I believe, the best way. And you, yeah, you, every time you have a state change, you have to have a, another snapshot for it. You have to regenerate them all the time. I feel like it looks like a good idea. And, and again, if you're doing it and you're seeing value, and maybe I'm not seeing the full value here, but to me, they're kind of a way to cope out from having to write unit tests and you lose a lot in the process. I also feel like they're very brittle in general. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, to me, that's, it's partly just testing implementation and not like behavior. Yeah, like you said, you lose the behavior. And yeah, like the whole, you know, what if I change a div to a span? Broken. Yeah, and that's like, again, you're getting a false positive. And no, that's not, that's not really what you want because... If you don't care about the structure of the HTML and it's documented, then you don't care. So yeah, it, it's not, that's not something that I use for view components. Definitely not. Uh, if someone is wondering whether they should use it or not, I would recommend not to do it, not for that kind of use case. If someone thinks, I'm good with it, I'm fine, don't tell me what to do, then you do you. <laughs> Yeah, I know I found snapshot testing to be this, um, to Ari's point, a little bit brittle. And just like sometimes you just make like a plural change and then the snapshot breaks and you change like the one text. And it just, yeah, it just became more of a pain to maintain over time. It wasn't really that reliable. And to your point, like I think a lot of testing is about like meaningful units of like to what matters to you and like giving you that confidence. And I think a lot of times as developers, we're so used to that, like especially when you have those like, like code coverage reports, you're like, oh, I got to get the 100%, you know? It's like, no, no, bad. (laughs) Don't do it. I still hear people say that though. They're like, 100% is the ideal. And I'm like, no, no, it's not. (laughs) Like maybe 80%, maybe. After that, you're kind of just wasting your time. (laughs) Yeah, that's actually true. You you usually spend, uh, it's like everything, you know? Like you take as much time to go to to the 100 mark from like the 95 to the 100 mark that you spent on the entire project at that point. And it depends what you want to do. Like if this is some kind of an experiment for you and you don't care and you have all the time in the world and you just care about hitting that mark, then go ahead, knock yourself out. But most of us are <laughs> testing projects that are like you're, you're, you're working for a company or like you also have to be efficient. And it's not to say that efficiency and productivity has to come in the way of clean code. No, it's just that 
Sometimes it makes no sense. And sometimes you just have a test that runs for something that you don't care about and nobody cares about, and that's fine. And if it's just because you can trick code coverage is such a, it's such a tricky thing and you can really trick it into thinking that you're testing much more than you want. So like there are many ways if you, if it's just about the number and showing a beautiful green badge on your readme, <laughs> you know what? There are ways, there are ways you can call it a method and just have it do nothing. So yeah, to, again, it's all of that is always about how can I make my life easier and my code more efficient? So I get that it can be tempting to go for those vanity metrics, like that green button, that up-to-date badge, but yes, that passing build. But you know, sometimes a build is failing for a reason and that's fine. And it's not about, don't freak out because everything is not perfect and at the top level. Try to understand why you do it. Try to understand the limitations. And, and yeah, to me, that's really the, the turning points in someone's career when they're building software is don't be a slave to your tools. Make them, like, make them work for you, you know? Make them work for you. Understand their purpose. Make them work for you. Don't work for them. Yeah, the code coverage thing kind of reminds me of this PS2 game called Okami where you're like this wolf and you're running around and there's like missions in the story. But after you finish it, there's these like collectibles that are buried underground. But you can only see them if you happen to be looking at the ground when the moon is up. And so if you don't, you're basically just digging at random. And the only point is to have done all Like, why? Why? And that's what 100% code coverage makes me feel like. As a completionist in video games, how dare you? <laughs> no, no, that's a lie. But uh, yeah, I get it. You know, I love to collect every coin. I want to collect all the badges, all the successes, all the achievements, all the rewards. But But it's... Like, okay, at some point, it's, it's also work. It also, like, there are much more to software engineering than code. Ultimately, you're building products. You're built, yeah. like, I'd, I'd love sometime for software engineers to care as much about the product and the UX and the accessibility and the usability and the user feedback as they are about whether they should be using spaces or or tabs or whatever, you know? <laughs> People spend time arguing about that? What? Yeah, still. <laughs> still. <laughs> yeah, that's and, and that's that's fine, you know? You're, you're always in your code. Your nose is in your code. You're like, you develop some kind of romantic feelings and that's totally fine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm the same. Like I look at my, you know, sometimes, hey, be honest, you look at your code and you're like, that's nice. Like I wrote yeah, that's some sexy nice code. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to take it out to dinner. <laughs> a nice long walk on the beach. <laughs> or the glass okay, of you're wine. You're taking it a little far there, but. <laughs> but yeah, sometimes you have to draw the line and yeah, realize that there are, you're not just writing code for the sake of it. It's just a mean to an end. And the end is a product that is awesome. And I think when a well-managed development team works, like when you look at the, the pieces of software that you love, uh, right now we're all looking at Zoom because we're all like, wow, it works well. Like everybody's remote it and it works really well. I'm sure that they have technical debt. Like I am a hundred percent sure of that and that they probably don't have a hundred percent coverage on the entire thing. But what matters is that you can log in for a one hour meeting uh, uh, with 280 people in times like that. And that's what you should be testing. Not that a button and toggles or whatever. Yeah. That's a really interesting point you made about access. I mean, they're all interesting, but about accessibility in particular, I'm curious, do you work that into your tests as well? What would that look like? So there is actually a testing library called testing library 
Vicancy nods. So, Katie, yeah. So, such really a, on the head such there. A great SEO move. Yeah, it's it's really cool. So, testing library, and then it has like flavors for everything. So, it's like React testing library, View testing library, etc. And so, the way he wrote it, it's a very opinionated library, and he wrote it in a way where you are really encouraged to query the elements that you want to test in your components by their accessible roles. So for example, if you want to query a title, you will do a get by role heading, you know? And so, and it's really encouraged and trying to do it differently will usually take you a lot more time and that's done on purpose. Like he, he, he tried to make it harder for you to do things in a non-accessible way, in a way that you would be testing implementation details. So for example, there is no shallow mounting, like you cannot automatically sub components. If you want to, like you cannot necessarily call something by uh, its tag name, or you can do it with the DOM API, but you cannot do just a get by element name or something like that. But what will be really first class citizen is by getting it with the area role or the, yeah, just accessible role. And that way, you're really, especially if you're doing TDD, you're really crafting something with accessibility in mind. And I think that's a really interesting approach. It may have limitations because, yeah, sometimes you need to test things in a different way. And so you can run into problems and it handles that, it lets you handle that. It may be a bit opinionated for some, but I think it's really interesting because it forces you in a way to work that way. And again, in so. We talked earlier about not working for your tools, but in that case, I think it's more using tools that force you to do, like to act on the principles that you've defined. And if you've defined that accessibility is non-negotiable, then you should be using tools that help you do that. Just like you use ESLint. ESLint is not here to make your life a living hell. It's here to help you find issues that may cause like make us problems. And sometimes it does like, uh, or when you're using, when you're doing TypeScript, sometimes, sometimes it makes your life a living hell. But <laughs> in the end, if you, if you decided that you needed TypeScript for a reason, then you know what is the overarching principle is that you want to have type safety because it makes sense for you. If you decided to use TypeScript just because, because it's cool or because whatever, but you don't really understand the value in having like static typing, then maybe you will think that it's making you your life a living hell and you will not realize why you're doing it. And that maybe you need to re-question your overarching principles, but not the tool itself. I see. So it's like if I wanted to start going to the gym, like it would make sense to go to one that's near me and like make a plan with a friend versus like one that's like a 20, 30 minute drive away. Cause then, you know, it's snowing out. And I'm like, I'm not going to go to the gym today. Right. And also decide that, why do I want to go to the gym? Like, I want to, I want to feel better. I want to feel healthier or because my parents say that I need to work out more, you know, because ultimately it's going to be hard. Ultimately, there are days where you feel like I don't want to do it. And you will find all the reasons that you don't want to do it. And so if you have the principle in mind and if you know why you're doing it, and if you know what your like, yeah, your goal, your ultimate goal, your, your North Star is, then it's going to be easier to go through the pain and to justify it rather than, yeah, I just want to, I just want to go because people say I should go. I just, I'm just using TypeScript because people said I, we should all be using TypeScript. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to use TypeScript. Sometimes it doesn't, sometimes, you know what, sometimes it doesn't make sense to test your code. If you're working on a super like side project that is mostly an experiment and you don't even know where it's going, don't go with tech. Like it, just go with code, experiment, have fun. It's always about knowing why you're doing something and not just doing it because people tell you you should be doing it. Yeah, you basically just described my entire work life. It's all just one <laughs> big experiment. And <laughs> I don't know where it's going to end up, but actually that, that brings me to one of the questions I have. So let's say you do work somewhere that, you know, it's, it's a startup and it's very, you know, fast paced, you know, just do it. Don't think about it, you know, 
and maybe you don't have clear requirements up front, how do you deal with that and reconcile that with TDD? Or can you? So yeah, that's hard. It's it can be hard. So first, I'll be very blunt. In some cases and in some places, it's not possible. And you have to make a decision because sometimes you're just in an environment where nobody who makes decisions and who decide, yeah, who decides on stuff cares about it. Or sometimes, yeah, you have you can have top management that ha- has really high vision. Oh, yeah, you should be. Uh, doing clean code, but they won't let you the time to actually write clean code. So in that case, you you also have to recognize whether you want to work like that or not. And I've been in those situations. I've been in companies that did not care actually about test quality. They said they did, but they did not actually care about it. And at some point you have to accept that you cannot control everything. And if you're fine with it, then all right, but you cannot always change everything. It does not always depend on you and you have to take decisions for yourself. Do I want to work in a company that one does not value the work that I do and won't let me be the expert that they hired me to be? And then if you're in a place that simply needs a little push or like, you know, you're working with smart people who are ready to listen and to talk to, but it's just that yeah, they don't have that culture. Usually what works is showing what happens when you don't have those tests. Because if you don't have those tests, ultimately it's going to take you more time because you're going to retest everything by hand. You will have issues that arise because you didn't know that you broke something. And so that that's, unfortunately, that's usually the only way to make people realize, like when you have a huge production issue and you have to work night and you have to have support, answer countless tickets, etc. That's usually when people realize, okay, we may not want that to happen again. And then, yeah, it's mostly communicating, showing how much, how much money it can cost. Because yes, it's going to cost money. If you have to stay over time, if you have to do, uh, like if you have to do a night shift, for example, and you have to be paid for that night shift, or if you have to fix things and so you're not working on that next feature and you have, it has to be pushed in the next sprint and then your stakeholders are unhappy and you have someone higher in the food chain who has to explain it, then yeah, it costs money. It does cost money. So those tiny things can have big effects. Ultimately, yes, that's, that's a lot about conversations, communication, and culture. Trying to make sure that first, believing in it yourself. If you don't believe in it, then it's going to be hard. And those conversations are hard. It's always hard to tell people, hey, I don't like the way we're working. I think we're not putting ourselves up for success because we don't, we are not, we are overlooking practices that we should be implementing. It's not easy. If you're a junior, it's even sometimes it feels impossible. It's normal. But with time and with experience and with enduring those times where you have to fix issues because of that, you realize that, hey, if you're working with people that you trust and that you know want the best, those conversations need to happen. Usually you're going to be seen as, as a knowledgeable person. And after saying that and after doing that, like everybody wants people who take charge. That's, to me, that's... Uh, that's really an important thing to understand. Nobody really likes to take responsibility, usually in life. And people love when some other people take charge, take the responsibility. And if you're willing to show, hey, you know what? I know what my responsibility is in the success of this project. And I know that if X breaks, it's going to be my fault. And I want to be sure that I do everything and we do everything in the team to make sure it does not happen, usually people are more inclined to follow you because they see that you care. And if they care as well, they usually don't have any reasons not to let you do it. Then you may have to go through compromise and it cannot be going from zero test and no testing culture to we test everything, people let us do TDD and we do half of the things that we used to do in a sprint, at least for the maybe the first months, because people need to, you know, get acquainted with it. But ultimately, it does not take that much more time, especially when you're doing it 
I believe in TDD because you are really collocating those two parts and you're not going to be like, I'm implementing and I'm actually experimenting a, a lot with stuff and then I'm going to test it. And so you're, you know, you're break, you're having a separation that is not really natural. No, actually you're like, okay, you know what? My time is valuable. So is yours. And if we want to go faster, we should not be removing steps. We should actually be adding steps where we do mindful planning instead of just being like, let's start building and developing. When was the last time that you started building something where someone gave you really unclear guidance and you finished on time? I don't think it happened really (laughs) recently because unless it's something really simple, it usually doesn't go that way. While a little bit of planning, a session where you define five, 10 specs and you implement it, usually it goes much faster. It's just because the extra effort is usually a bit much for people. And they're like, I don't want to do the work up front. I'd rather be doing something else. And they'd rather be like in a reactive mode. Show me the finished thing and I will tell you reactively, it should not be doing that. It should be doing that because I need to see the code. No, I need to be doing my job the best way possible. And you need to put on the work that you're responsible for doing. So yeah, that's also the responsibility of your PMs, of your product designers, whatever people are defining the product to also do their job the way they expect you to be doing their job. And that's a conversation that you can have with them. They probably, they know it and they read a lot about it and they would love to do it. And maybe both parties are thinking that the other party doesn't want to do it. With a conversation, usually it unlocks a lot of things and experiments. Like you cannot know whether something is going to work or not if you don't experiment. Yeah, I don't even know what it's like to have a PM. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) What's that? Uh, Dysfunction. Anyway. not to have one. (laughs) Uh, Like I've been in companies where I did not have one, but you know, when I say PM, it's mostly anybody... No, okay. No, not everybody can be a PM and the PMs at Ugly are going to hate me if I say that. No, but it's more like if you, if you don't have a PM, it's more like the person who defines what the product is and how it should behave is taking that responsibility. And if someone wants to be in the seat of, oh, I want to tell you what the product should be doing. Okay. But then do the full work. Don't just take the fun, take the actual work that goes with it. You want me to build something? You need to tell me what I need to be building. And my responsibility is to make sure that I build it in the best possible way and that I respect what you want. But I cannot build something that I don't know. If I don't know what it is, I cannot build anything. If you tell me just build a thing, uh, what what should (laughs) I be building? You know, oh, just just put a button there. Just throw a button there. (laughs) Sure. (laughs) that's not how that works not everything is just a button all right isn't it though everything is a list i remember sometimes some i've seen an experiment where someone showed me you know what everything is a list and you can build an html page with only lists and actually you can and it's scary but (laughs) i believe it Well, this has been an incredible conversation. So, you know, obviously, I think people are going to have lots of questions for you, Sarah. So, where can people find you on the internet? All right. So, you can find me on Twitter. I'm mostly on Twitter. So, it's frontstuff underscore IO. So, F R O N T S T U F underscore IO on Twitter. Or you can type my name and you may find me. I have the same avatar everywhere. You can find me on GitHub. So it's Sarah Dayan, all letters. My website is saradayan.dev. And I have a blog where I talk about front stuff, front end stuff, and it's frontstuff.io. If you go on Twitter, you'll find everything. Awesome. We'll be sure to include that in the show notes and on the site. Before we start wrapping up, Ari, Tessa, do you have any final questions for Sarah? I mean, yes, I could go for hours, but... I was going to say, I, I, say I, think, I think we need to bring you back for other topics because Definitely. I want to talk about like utility for CSS and all this and, and dinero. Like, oh my gosh, we'll have to do that for another episode for sure. Tessa, anything on your end? What Ari said and what you said. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Sounds great. Well, with that, it's time for us to move on to picks. 
Ari, would you like to go first? Sure. I'm actually going to take a break from music picks this week. Well, these are interesting, strange times we're living (laughs) in. And I have a feeling that even by the time this episode comes out, a lot of us will still be social Mm -hmm. distancing. So I thought I'd pick some shows that I love that would be great to binge when you can't go out. Dear God, people, stay home. (laughs) First pick, number one, stay home. Yeah. (laughs) Yes, actually, yeah. First pick, please stay home. All right. So the first show is a Netflix show, The Politician. I did not think I would like it because politics, whatever. But it was so well done. It was, it walked this line between satire and drama and comedy that is so rare and so clever that I absolutely loved it. Unfortunately, there's only one season of that out, but it's Mm. good. So you should watch it anyway. And the next show is Brooklyn Nine-Nine. If you have not been watching Brooklyn (laughs) Nine-Nine, you are missing out. And there are like seven seasons that you can watch. So plenty of time to waste on that one. But it's not a waste because, oh my God, Captain Holt. So (laughs) hilarious. (laughs) All right. And the third show is You're the Worst, which... You can also find on Hulu, which, oh yeah, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, you can find that on Hulu. You're the Worst is a bit raunchy. So if you're not into that, maybe don't watch it. But one of my favorite things about the show is it's very real handling of depression, which you don't really see a lot of on TV because it's not a pretty thing in life, but it happens to a lot of people. So, but it's also really funny. I know that sounds weird. Realistic depression and funny. How does that work? It just does. (laughs) And the last show that I'm going to pick actually is part of why I became a developer. (laughs) The show is Halt and Catch Fire, which I believe you can still find on Netflix. I'm hoping so. But it's about a gaming startup in the early 80s. And it actually ends up following them through to the mid 90s while, you know, skipping some periods of time. I want to say it's three seasons and it's wrapped up nicely. So you won't, you know, leave it feeling horrible. Okay, maybe there is one thing in the last season that you might feel horrible about, but it still ties things up nicely. So those are my four picks. It's the most picks I've ever had. <laughs> yes, that's true. I love it. I know. It. I'm going to have to see if uh, the Halt and Catch Fire, definitely. That sounds really interesting. It's really good. All right. Tessa, what do you have for us this week? Well, I mean, since we're speaking about Brooklyn Nine-Nine, maybe this is also a good time to check out Mike Scher's other show, The Good Place, which is all about Ethics and uh, yes. what's the opposite yeah, so of individual That has been picked ego? twice on this show because <laughs> we yeah, all love just, it. <laughs> I've, seen, I've seen a lot of tweets about it and I'm like, oh yeah, the points about the trolley problem seem very on yes. Yes. <laughs> Be a cheaty. <laughs> but like cheaty, like cheaty at the end. Not like cheaty at the beginning, maybe. Or <laughs> yeah, shirt, maybe. Shirt, shirtless cheaty when he's mixing... <laughs> Peeps in chili because that was fantastic. (laughs) (laughs) See, you have to watch it now just to understand that reference. (laughs) But yeah, well, I I seem to have a penchant for watching Netflix shows around the time they get canceled, like the OA. But I would like to recommend... Don't even get me started. (laughs) Bring it back. (laughs) I'd like to recommend Anne with an E. The first episode is a lot, but Anne with an E... It's an Anne of Green Gables. I, I feel like it's like a, a modernized and somewhat like politicized take on it. Probably, I, it's one of those books I always meant to read, never read. So I don't, I don't know. I could be wrong. But they deal with a lot of, of problems that I think children are exposed to, but don't really have the opportunity to talk about. Similar to if any of our listeners have watched Sex Education, I feel like that's another show where they tackle problems. So, like in Anne with an E, there's a part where they talk about sexism, for example, and the power to. I guess, have ownership of your own own body and other other types of topics like that. And overall, it's just like a nice show about nice people in a nice town. And it's really sweet. And one of the main characters has like a really expressive face, but doesn't talk very much. So that's pick number one. Uh, pick number two, I just started watching Dispatches from Elsewhere. And the first episode was very amusing to me because I was telling somebody that the New York Times, I think, once... You know that sound in Law and Order in the intro when they're like the criminal dun, dun. justice system, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, that sound. So, uh, yes. They had, they had uh, I don't know what the word is, but put it into writing as Chung Chung. And I'm like, that is not the sound. And no. I've been scarred ever since. And they had a callback to this. So I enjoyed that. But in the fourth episode, there's a scene where 
one character has to describe what she's remembering to another character and they visualize what both characters are seeing. So the woman is like, this is what I'm seeing and you can see what she's seeing. And then you hear her tell her partner what she's seeing and then you see what he's visualizing based on what she said. And I don't think I've ever... Like that was a novel experience for me. I don't think I've ever seen that before where they visualize communication, like so many aspects of it and how it gets translated and what gets lost and what transmits, if that makes sense. So I thought that was super interesting. I know it was wild. And then I just finished We Should Get Together by Kat Bellows. I'm not sure if that's how you say it, but it's, it's the book on friendship. It's or like how to do friendship, I guess. It's, it's very intense. There's a lot of tips on scheduling and stuff. So it's, it's more biased towards in-person meetings, but that might be... I'm still digesting it, but it might be something worth reading during this time. And if friendships aren't your thing, maybe it's premature to recommend Animal Crossing since I haven't played it yet and I've never played an Animal Crossing, but I'm excited for it. We'll see. I feel like you're calling me out, Tessa, with the friendship book. <laughs> Not at all. Why would you think that? Sarah, what do you have for us this week? All right, so I have uh, four picks. Uh, two are about dev and two are shows because let's watch shows. Let's just stay home and watch shows because now we have a good excuse not to go and exercise and just watch shows. <laughs> so I'm a big fan of trying to bring you know, old patterns or tried and true patterns in front end. I think this is usually where we have the biggest breakthroughs and that's why I love TDD. And so there are two things that come either from backend or older patterns that I really love in programming and bringing in front end. First one is state machines. So if we follow kind of the same people on Twitter, either you never heard of state machines and you don't even know what I'm talking about, or you're like, oh my God, again, state machines, everybody is talking about it, please stop. (laughs) And so I'm in the... I'm in the camp of yay state machines. I love them. I want them all the time everywhere. So there is an excellent library called XState, which was created by David Korshid. He's a software engineer at Microsoft and he created an implementation in JavaScript. And so basically, if you want to understand it quickly, like state machines, they're a kind of a tried and true and tried and tested mathematical model. And it was invented way before JavaScript. And so what it allows you to do is to model the behavior of a system that can only be in one state at any given time. So not several, not none, only one. So there's a finite number of possible states and they are triggered by a finite number of possible events. And so going from one state to another is called a transition. And if you get those three concepts, you get state machines. And so... The really great thing when you bring that into the front end is that instead of defining imperative UI flows, if this happens, then do this, and you lose track of their logic, state machines make them first-class citizen because they let you model them declaratively instead of imperatively. So it works extremely well with front end and it works extremely well with view, which is the most beautiful declarative front end system. And so the great thing is that they're the closest thing to an actual flowchart. And if you are to plan, oh, that thing when I'm clicking, it's going to do this. And then if I double click, it's going to do that. And if I have clicked before one time and I click again, it's going to do that. What you're going to draw is a flowchart. And so the closest thing to a flowchart is actually a state machine or a state chart. And this is definitely like how a product manager or a UI designer would likely design the experience of a product. So it's really great if you're working with those kinds of people or, or if you're doing it yourself because you're going to have a really tight relationship between the planning and the actual implementation. So your code is going to look a lot more like the planning. So just like TDD, where you bring your specs into your code, here you bring your flowcharts into your code. And that's really nice. The API, so there is an API for Vue. You can use it with the options API. You can already use it with the composition API, which makes it even better. If you go on my blog on frontstep.io, this is the latest blog post that I wrote is about state machines in Vue. So you're going to see I built a, a markdown editor with, with state machines and it's actually super easy to do. And so you'll see how it can make your code much more expressive rather than nesting a bunch of if statements and not even understanding 
what's happening. And state machines are super easy to unit test, by the way. So, so that would be my first pick. Then my second pick is going to be uh, Vuex ORM. So if you were at Vue Amsterdam, you may have seen this talk by Kia who created Vuex ORM. So he's the newest member on the Vue.js core team. And he created Vuex ORM. And ORMs, so object relational mapping, are another great concept that I like. It comes, usually you do it on the back end if you've ever used a Rails or if you use the PHP, for example, you may have used it like Doctrine or stuff like that. And so it's really interesting to use uh, ORMs in the front end, especially with UX, because it lets you create a normalized data schema within UX store with relationships like has one, belongs to many. So you're bringing those concepts that you have in databases, which is most of the time where you get your data. You bring them really expressively into your front-end code. And you're getting a lot of benefits because you have a really clean API that abstracts a lot of nitty-gritty stuff that may happen in Vuex. Like if you if you've done Vuex, if you've used Vuex quite extensively with a lot of state at some point, it's getting beasty. It's getting messy. And so you really benefit from having that. Also, one great thing is because you have a normalized state shape, it avoids that you have duplicate data into your store. And so, yeah, if you have users and those users can write comments, then you don't want to have that user one time in the users list and also another time in nested in comments. You want to have it once. You want to be efficient about that. And Vuex ORM lets you do that pretty elegantly. So, I'm really excited about it. I think, so let me check on GitHub. I don't know if it's uh, stable already. Releases, I'm going to check that. So yeah, it's still, it's still V0, but it's already pretty amazing. What it does as a V0, I think it's pretty amazing. So definitely check it out. Vue XORM, excellent, excellent library. Bringing ORM in the front end is a really good idea. So yeah, go for it. And so I'm going to move on to shows. So it, they're not new shows, but they're cool shows. And I think you can, depending on where you are in the world, uh, you can probably find them on Netflix. The first one is The 100. So if you don't know what The 100 is, uh, it's a really, really cool, fun show. It may, from the outside, look like a teen show, which I think was probably intended at first. Like, I guess, first two episodes, if you watch that, you're like, my God, what am I watching? Twilight? And so then you're like, okay, it actually, like, I, my guess, my hunch is that they wanted it to, they wanted to start it like that. And then they saw opportunities and they were like, okay, let's make it a legit show. And it's excellent. Like when you really go deep into it, it's excellent. Basically what, what it is, is that you are in a post-apocalyptic world. So yeah, that's the perfect moment to watch something like that. You're like 97 years after the like a nuclear war that happened. And basically you had people who survived because they were in space. They were in space. They were in uh, space stations. And so they just waited all that time in space, but they're running out of oxygen in their station. And so what they want to do is to check whether the earth is inhabitable again, if um, the radiation level is low enough. And so they're sending a hundred youngsters Crazy scenarios. It's really, really cool, really fun. It talks a lot about, about a lot of things, culture, religion, cult, but at the same time, technology, um, many, many things intertwine. It's extremely interesting. I, I would definitely recommend it. And if you think that's just the dumb teen show, please try to, if you, if you like post-apocalyptic shows, movies, whatever, sci-fi, Go for it. You, you, you're going to love it. And final pick would be, if you've never watched it, please do it right now. Please watch Master of None on Netflix. It's excellent. So it's with uh, Aziz Ansari. And so you're following that uh, New Yorker who's kind of a, yeah, kind of young, hip, yeah, young hipster actor. It's super hard to say what Master of None is about. It's just hilarious. And yeah, if you've never watched it, you're, you're going to have so much fun. So yeah, definitely go for it. I was just going to say, I feel like the 100 fans are really like 
hardcore because like I watched Fear the Walking Dead and I believe one of the actresses on there played somebody called Lexa on the hundred. And every time Fear the Walking Dead comes on, they're all like, oh, it's Lexa. And like, they should have done this and that in the hundred. So it seems like it really, really captivates people. I don't know. They lost me on like the third season. <laughs> if I'm being honest. But yeah, like, up until then, it was great. See, those you really have to buy them. Like Supernatural at this point, I'm bought in, but like, I know it's ridiculous, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's fair. All right. So for my picks today, uh, the first of which is actually Algolia, so which is where Sarah works. And so it's a fantastic tool, as she mentioned, for document searching. So if you have an open source project, they can actually give you like a, basically a free API key to help you like scrape. And then if you're looking to create docs, like Viewpress easily integrates with it. So I had a fantastic experience with it. So definitely highly recommend it if you're looking to create like any sort of doc site for your project. And being as we're all social distancing, online gaming is coming back full force because we can't board game and stuff. So my pick for online gaming this week is Factorio, which is like a resource management game. And what's cool is that it's fairly low CPU requirements. So you don't have to worry if you don't have like a new computer. And you all can join together. The premise is you crash land on the planet and you have to like create technology from scratch. So you have to like smelt iron to make plates, get water to boil, steam to make electricity. It's a lot of fun. Super time consuming though. So totally recommend it if you're looking for just a way to just get together with friends and have fun. And since everyone did TV shows, I have one as well. Currently, you know, with everyone being remote, watching The Office is just a nice way to just <laughs> remind ourselves of what shenanigans happen when we're all in person. And, you know, you don't have a Michael Scott or Dwight shoot to liven things up. You just throw on, throw on an office of the episode. <laughs> we have one more year of Netflix, right? I think so. I think the license is going to run out again because it just came back on. So for those who are feeling nostalgic for The Office, it's on Netflix again. I know I wanted to say because you talked about Algolia and I, I'd like to, to use that opportunity because so right now with coronavirus, what is happening is that Algolia has decided to give pro plans for free. If you want to build something to help, like to help to prevent or to inform, if you want to use Algolia for that, we want to help. And so you can request a pro plan. So with you would have all the pro features for free. And that's, yeah, one of the ways that we want to do our part is to help you uh, inform people, help people, care for people. So if you have any project like that, you can apply on the website. So you can go, you can either go on the blog or check Algolia for open source and apply for that. And we'll be super happy to give you a pro plan for free so you can help help people and make sure that we all stay safe and we get our bets all safe and sound. That's really that is, awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Very relevant. We'll make sure to include that link in the show notes. Before we close, I, I want to add one last minute pick. Last night, I, I'm making air quotes. I attended UDC for the first time and it was like a very <laughs> congenial and, and fun fun affair. All the hosts were having this fun chat with each other about their experiences at UConn. And it's all remote right now on Zoom, I believe. Right, Ben? So, mm -hmm. yeah. Check that out. <laughs> all right. Well, thank you, Sarah, so much for joining us. It's been so much fun. And I, yeah, we, we totally have to have you back for another one of these topics. <laughs> so, I'd um, love to. We, thanks for yeah, having me. Absolutely. Well, thanks, everybody, for listening today. And until next time, enjoy the view. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage option, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com view.